0: difficult to keep the line between the past and the present.
1: you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Keith Phelps, Genevieve Koski. Tasha Robinson. On this episode, we continue with the latest attempt to outstomp the great ape with Kong Skull Island, which I can assure you is not your great-great-grandfather's King Kong. Rather than update it to the present day, however, Kong Skull Island begins at the end of the Vietnam War where a government agent, played by John Goodman, takes advantage of the chaos by hastily arranging a mission to the uncharted Skull Island. For reasons that will soon become apparent, Goodman has commissioned a military helicopter squadron, led by Samuel L. Jackson, to escort his scientists in a seemingly unnecessary payload of bombs and other weapons. Also joining the group is a professional adventurer, played by Tom Hiddleston, and an agitating photojournalist, played by Bree Larson. Apocalypse when? They might be asking themselves as they chopper over the island. Apocalypse now! Replies the beast that swats them from the skies. Cue up. Time has come today. Next picture show, listeners. We promise to be back before the eleven minutes it takes for that song to end. These are photos of an island in the South Pacific. The place where myth and science
0: meet.
1: We use explosives to shake the earth, helping us to map the surface of the island. you are dropping bombs. Mm.
0: Scientific instruments. I see trouble. Is that a
2: monkey? Magnificent. You knew that thing was out here? I'm sorry for your man, Colonel. But if you want to make their sacrifice worthwhile, get us home with proof.
1: Monsters exist. Okay, so you so all are going to have to help me out on this movie, Kong Skull Island, <laughs> 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 because I d- I don't get it. I just I don't understand what this this film is on about. Maybe you all enjoyed it and can can explain it to me because this mix of monster movie and apocalypse now <laughs> Vietnam commentary I did not feel it as they say. So please, someone enlighten
0: me. So when I when I heard the conceit of this movie, I thought. That's interesting. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but they must know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was, I mean, I was kind of into the, to seeing this movie. I liked the cast. I didn't like this movie. I didn't like this movie at all. Was little, I liked the movie less the, the more I thought about it, and for a lot of different reasons. But that that whole central conceit not making a whole lot of sense is is one of them. Like, I just cannot not. I, I actually think it's a little insulting to equate. Samuel Jackson's dissatisfaction with America losing the war with, you know, turning Kong into the, his movie Dick to take out the frustration with America's war effort. It's just, it's it's kind of silly. I mean, what am I, what am I saying? Any Who, who likes Kong's and It's okay.
3: I didn't dislike it. Um, I thought it was very much like a B movie with blockbuster pretensions. Mm-hmm. You know, the Vietnam thing, it didn't really... Maybe because it was so haphazardly and confusingly handled, it didn't really trigger anything for me. It's it, so it, much
0: it, of the movie, though. yeah,
3: I guess. But, I mean, I was just there for the monster fights, and the yeah. monster fights were pretty good. So, you know, everything other than that has honestly kind of just faded into background that, noise for me, which me is don't... a problem with the movie. Don't get me wrong. And that is why I, I'm not, like, wholeheartedly endorsing this movie. But what it does well, it does pretty well.
0: But even the monster fights let me down. Like the the mm-hmm. last fight, it's pretty good. I thought, well, that's pretty good. They're queuing up an even bigger fight that's going to end this movie. <laughs> and then the movie ended. <laughs> yeah. Well, the budget runs out.
1: <laughs>
2: I'm <am laughs> so over watching giant apes fight lizard things. I, I'm just and fight things in general. Like the the entire. Wait, what was fight. The, what
3: was the last ape that fought a giant lizard thing? I mean, I, mean, I mean, you're never over my house on Saturday nights, <laughs> so. You don't, I mean, you don't know my life. I mean, I mean, I mean, lizards fight each other all the time in modern blockbusters, but an ape. Now you got something.
2: I mean, I've seen Mighty Joe <laughs> Young. I've seen all the Kong movies. Uh, like, I've seen kaiju movies. Like, it just, I don't care. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm over giant apes. I mean, I think that this film does interesting things in terms of making him so ape-like. Like, there's there's such a, a wide stretch between the original Kong, who was so human in some ways, so, so visually expressive. He had such human eyes in particular and human expressions. And and this ape, which is very strongly an ape, I I think the separation there makes the character more interesting. And I think some of the things that they decide to do with the story in terms of, no, we're not going to stupidly take him back to New York and, like, count on a couple of chains to hold him down. And, oh, what a surprise. That didn't work out. We're not going to do any of that. We're going to keep it on the island. I thought that was an interesting decision. But for me, the movie was honestly just like... Okay, Tom Hiddleston, we have decided to make a Hearts of Darkness type, very, very serious action movie in the, the jungle. We, we need you to lead these people on a desperate search for safety. Okay, John C. Riley. we're making a lively comedy about a bunch of goofballs uh, who go blundering through the bush and discover a giant ape. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, John Goodman, we're making a film about government overreaching and just like general stupidity and how it results in these, these debacles. Okay, Brie Larson, we're making a tender movie about an ape and a woman like every other Kong movie that's ever been made, and on and on and on. Okay, Samuel L. Jackson, we're making Apocalypse Now, and this time you get to star in it. Everybody in this movie is in a different movie, and it's not just that their performances don't blend together at all. It's that whenever the movie focuses on any one of them for more than five seconds at a time – the storyline is different, and the tone okay. is different.
1: Okay. This is really good news for you because I, I'm going to make another confession, which is that I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> for like, I fell asleep for. I don't think I fell asleep for that long, but when I came to, I was I was just like, "What the hell is going on? Why? What? What is the purpose of, of this of this film?" And, we sh- and I think I think the idea of having everybody at uh, working at cross purposes that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> but then in, you you,
3: you went experience. back and saw it again, so you would be fully informed for this podcast, right, Scott? It's expensive, it's
0: like fifteen dollars. We should we should point out this is a professional hazard that we all uh deal with that's we, you we ca- do it, it's yeah, it's i i it's why i caffeinate before every movie whenever possible I and ate nachos that was <laughs> probably a bad you're heading you're heading yeah. the opposite direction at yeah, that point
1: Sleep nachos you may be drinking yeah, whiskey I, I, I saw the late point. i saw the late show and ate nachos that was probably yeah. a bad idea but yeah. i was just like I, i'm gonna see king kong i'm gonna eat nachos and that was a really bad play but i will say i will concede uh that i actually think it's skillfully staged the direction is quite slick and it has i think one superb sequence which is when you get all of the gas that is uh <laughs> let oh, wait no. it's gas right yeah toxic gas yeah
3: no i'm i'm, I'm laughing because i know what you're gonna say in it
1: yeah, you <laughs> get all of the toxic gas not not coming from king kong but from these these <laughs> uh canisters and, and uh, it just the you know it's visually striking. It's uh, yeah. what is it, kind of a kind of a yellow green that they're, they're they're fighting through. Um, reminded me a little bit of, of the best sequence in the Great Wall, which I'm sure all of you have have seen. <laughs> but I thought that was a you know a nice expressionist kind of action sequence. You know, in a movie that could certainly use um, a little more originality.
2: It's really beautiful on the big screen, like the vividness of the color and the you know the people moving around as almost shadows in this in the space. And then Tom Hiddleston charges into it with a oh. gas mask on and then he
3: pulls off his gas mask. It's, oh, the Tom Hiddleston hero shot. It was, it got such a laugh in my Oh, when he was in, flying screening. through the air in slow-mo? Yeah, just like with the saber. I don't even know. He had like a sword and
2: was just like... It's a, it was like, it's a katana. Katana. And it's a katana that he like basically turns to John C. Reilly and he's like, you've got a cool ass weapon and you're doing much better than I am. Give me your weapon. I'm Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, yeah. And then as you, as you say, he immediately takes off his mask and drops his weapon.
3: But just like the way that that little segment within that larger sequence, which I agree is overall very striking, but that little Tom Hiddleston running across the screen moment—that's for me—it evoked the the really good scene with Kate McKinnon and uh, Ghostbusters, pretty much like the only great scene in that movie. It really just drove home for me like one of my biggest problems with this movie, which is Tom Hiddleston is so miscast. He is not an he is, action hero. He is not
2: at all miscast for the movie that he was cast in, <laughs> which is about three minutes of this movie. I, the the yeah. scene, the scene in the bar where John Goodman recruits him was one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Oh no! <laughs> you, <laughs> mean a, you mean <laughs> the scene where they tell
3: us how like what a thrilling adventurer he is, and then he's like, "Yep, I'm a thrilling adventurer," and that's it. It sets up a much more interesting.
0: Yes, yeah, it <gasps> a much more interesting character. That's another mm-hmm. thing with this movie is you spend a lot of time establishing all these characters, and then. Once they get to the island... You know, if, if they don't get picked off one by one, they just spend a few minutes doing like, the most obvious things for their characters to do at any given point. Um, I'm just
3: never going to buy Tom Hiddleston as like a rugged adventurer. I mean, I like Tom Hiddleston; he does a lot of stuff well. But like,
0: he did they... audition to be Thor.
2: Well, and, and he didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Man, there are... by the end of the movie, I, I just thought it was really interesting that by the end of the movie, we basically have like a black man, an Asian woman. Uh, grizzled old weird comedy John <laughs> C. Riley, oh. Tom Hiddleston, the representative of uh, white man with the the set jaw and the scruff <laughs> left over from the 1933 <laughs> Kong, uh, and and you know the other woman, and it's just this like culty group that like look would look perfect on the poster. But by that time, you don't really know why any of them are there, like what they represent, what their stories are. The Asian woman is there for the entire movie, as near as I can tell, so they can say they have an Asian woman in, in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the, the movie. I, I have no idea what her character name is. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure she's a scientist. <laughs> J-
1: Jenny I went over this. It's San. San.
2: Yes. Oh, I mean, she's
3: here in the credits. Yes. It's, it's that, noticeable. That's how we... Uh... Well, it came up in discussion because Scott and I were talking about how Kongskull Island does the woman on the boat thing with brie larson but then was like oh wait no there was another woman <laughs> on the boat we just forgot about yeah. her because she didn't do anything and i kept
2: watching her because i was like is, is this our like our bechdel test thing where yeah. the two of them will say hi you're also on the ship yes i am and the, they're like that's that's what we get but no it makes me wonder if there's a chinese cut of this movie where like she's the hero if she <laughs> or- is a
0: chinese actress probably but probably better known in japan yeah maybe, maybe. she's in the great wall though that which everyone saw yeah
1: which, which, everyone, which, which everyone saw so so then which of the movies will we want to see i think i think i would want to see the john c Riley movie right?
3: uh, not if i have to watch that horrible postscript where he goes back and <laughs> oh, fights I, his son a lot of questions
0: about that post-script. Okay. <laughs> um yeah but 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 I, I think i'd watch the john goodman movie uh oh, you? Okay. I think that's sort of like so, so the, you're
1: on board with the whole vietnam thing
0: i want to see that done well
1: Okay, it yeah. doesn't have to be Vietnam. It can be just him leading, leading everyone into the bleep. Well, yeah.
3: and and the, and the John Goodman movie isn't really the Vietnam movie. It's the setting up the massive monster crossover universe mm-hmm. that we get in that post credits scene, like the whole thing with Monarch and him that's the story his character is advancing I think more than any Vietnam allegory
0: okay I want to talk about the John C. credit <laughs> stuff I want to I'm going to sidetrack this whole podcast because <laughs>
3: the they, way right. that scene sidetracked the whole movie for those end. that don't
0: care about spoilers here's here's the deal yeah, John C. Riley has been lost in this island since World War II it's 1973 he talks about going home to his wife and his son he left behind 28 26 years ago mm-hmm. he goes home first of all his son is still there living at home <laughs> <laughs> yeah they don't know he's coming. Like, no one could alert them that your husband... <laughs> Presumably this would be... Probably be the last World War Two soldier to return home, right? This would be a major news story. And then yeah. the next shot is just him watching watching a Cubs game and drinking a beer, like and, and
2: know, eating a hot dog.
0: Yeah. A hot dog. All you... of the
2: things that he had referenced earlier that he like really loved. Yeah, I don't like.
0: But but, it, but it's all like, home movies too. I, yeah, it's I all shot he, on home. Yeah, sixteen uh, millimeter. Super, film. Yeah, yeah, But, but I, <laughs> I guess he's earned it. But I want to know how much time elapsed between the tearful homecoming and then him sitting there watching a Cubs game, because if not, a lot of time has passed. That's kind of that doesn't well for his future.
2: I, I kind of assumed that there was at least a 30-minute gap where they went to the grocery store <laughs> yeah, and bought a hot dog. Hot dog <laughs>
0: like, I don't keep uh, hot dogs yeah, at home, I, honey. I was going to shout out
1: to the wife for not remarrying. That's was kind true. of expecting that reveal of just like here's the kids and there's the wife and here's actually
3: the... actually that wasn't his son that was her new husband. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so she pulled it me more. Yep,
2: yep. <laughs> it was the seventies. Keeping with the whole John C. Riley thing, though, it, like his wacky character introduction and then the point where he tells everyone the story of Kong, and you get these like really cool native art things made in a really unlikely way on a whole bunch of different uh, pieces of wood right? <laughs> set at different depths like somebody went through a lot of trouble to make these weird like magic eye native art things the silent natives are great production designers <laughs> well you know if you're not if you're not wasting a bunch of time talking yeah. like we are for instance you can get a lot of art done <laughs> like all of that just existed in a really weird space and that scene in particular we're veering back and forth between the John Goodman movie and the John C riley movie Movie. here is a place that time has forgot here is this entire like, order of things that is very different from the order that you know it's kind of the Godzilla world order of things and then by the way here are some wacky one-liners I, I just I didn't know what to make of any of that Like I laughed at the jokes because yeah. they were puncturing the tension but was that tension you wanted punctured?
1: Totally I wanted the, the Riley angle just because, I, because the seriousness of the film uh, failed to uh, register with me at all
0: and I love John C. Riley, but I'm not sure that was the most adept comedy I've seen in an action no, film, maybe, you know?
1: Maybe not. And it, it, maybe it is my fault for, for having some sort of expectation that this would be the goofy action comedy blockbuster thing that it mm-hmm. really wasn't. Uh,
0: it really wasn't. Maybe it could have, should have committed to that. I'm not sure. I can tell you when the movie completely lost me. And it was one line. But when they when they come to... The bones of Kong's parents, <laughs> which apparently there are only three Kongs on the island or whatever. And Brie Larson, who's this anti-war photographer, <laughs> see, she's seen it, man. She's been there. She's seen it. She goes, "I've seen mass grave sites, and I, I know one when I see them," or something like that. And just to equate these two giant fantasy apes with like whatever, like atrocities she'd seen in Vietnam. It's like this is not working for me at all. Movie, this is, <laughs> I am checking out.
3: I well. In, in the spirit of the shoot your brain Keith I will say actually it wasn't just Kong's parents there like it was where the skull crawlers sure. like regurgitated all their bones so like I, I mean I, I think it was like intended just to like set up the skull crawlers as the the big bad sure you know but I mean it's it, it a terrible life
0: it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's also beyond like the weird equation of skull crawlers with whatever she saw in Vietnam it's also like you know it's a big hole Full of bones. I doesn't really take. I can probably point this out as a mass, mass burial ground too. No, you can't. You
2: you haven't you haven't been there. You haven't been in the stuff, uh, man. That's true. For me, that scene threw me kind of irrevocably because it's just like, okay, Godzilla. You have a giant atomic breathing lizard monster. It came from mutation hand wave. It's a big metaphor for stuff. Fine. It had radioactivity, the future, fear of technology, blah, 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 whatever. When you suddenly say that Godzilla had parents – You're creating a sort of timeline where, okay, so what happened to Godzilla's parents' parents? Like, Mm -hmm. how did any of this ecology develop? Where is all of this coming from? Why are there three giant apes? Where were the other giant apes before that? Like, all of a sudden you're making me think about the history of Kong and the island in a way that makes no sense. Because it—it it suddenly it becomes you're introducing the concept of history into something that doesn't need a history, and then you're taking that history back to I don't know maybe 20 years, and then it doesn't exist before that, which is actually worse. I think I, I mean
3: caveat. I agree with everything you're saying, <laughs> but I, I'm trying to approach the movie on its own terms, mm-hmm. and I think like thinking in terms of the original King Kong and what we were talking about. Kind of having sympathy for Kong and, and humanizing him to an extent, and Fei Ray's character and his like love of her basically being the vehicle for that. Skull Island gets rid of that angle between Kong and, I guess it would be Brie Larson's character, but it could be San. We don't know. Um, <laughs> Maybe
2: during the thirty minutes of cut footage. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. So I think. Giving him parents and making him an orphan is the way in which this movie is attempting to give sympathy to Kong, you know, and and humanize him. It clearly doesn't work is evidenced by all of our reactions but if i were to get in the screenwriter's head that is what i'd say they are attempting to do here
2: i agree with you i think that that was the point but i mean we're we're getting into darth vader is baby anakin territory mm-hmm. here like <laughs> for me the single thing that probably worked most about the film is the first sequence when the helicopter spot kong and he's just this ginormous incomprehensible thing mm-hmm. you know that they're not in any way equipped for technologically or emotionally like he is something literally out of a lost world he is something phenomenal and, and cosmic and inexplicable and i think the way that combat scene that follows is directed Really makes you feel the impact of his size and his ferocity and his not exactly invulnerability, but but his power. And then to turn that around and be like, and here and he's also a sad orphan. It was just, <laughs> it was very like, and here's baby Anakin being like baby sad Darth Vader. Yeah. Everything Patton Oswalt ever said about not necessarily needing to know where the things you love come from.
0: I mean, that first shot is really great. I mean, there's some really great striking images in mm. this movie I, mm-hmm. I will give it that and, and and like the original it's really effective when it plays for the, your sense of scale and you know the, the, and how these people are dwarfed by the creatures they encounter so mm-hmm. yeah point credit words do yeah
2: I, mean, I, I often love this movie like up to 30 seconds at a time <laughs> and then maybe not for five minutes after that
1: you like like the little water buffalo wow
2: that was out of a miyazaki movie yeah, that's pretty neat. when the giant water buffalo comes out of of the pond mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I was just like this is what dark crystal looked like in jib henson's wildest dreams mm-hmm. and it's what every miyazaki movie looks like i don't know what it's doing in this film
1: well it's just there you know it's one of the many things you can see on and skull island <laughs> well um,
3: along with well and I'm, I'm sorry i'm sorry scott i need to ask because i did not see this scene because i was cowering in fear but did you guys enjoy the giant spider
2: massacre I did actually. That was pretty good. <laughs> I spent the entire time thinking, "Boy, Genevieve's going to enjoy this." I'm not going to tell her about it.
1: <laughs> also, you, uh, cool. Genevieve was. Uh, it's also uh, was not true. We uh, <laughs> you should have. You would have warned her if you if you could have. Mm.
2: But I, I mean, would have warned her if I thought about it. I mean, the, the the
3: little bit I saw before I realized what it was and buried my face in my boyfriend's shoulder looked pretty cool, like with like the kind of the bamboo forest. That oops, they are actually giant spider legs, mm-hmm. right? That's what was happening. Yeah. There? That's what yeah. happened. Okay.
2: And actually, I, what I thought was kind of a cool thing about that fight sequence that you may not have known noticed through your boyfriend's (laughs) shoulder was that the way they start fighting it is to just hack off the bamboo legs the way they would hack bamboo that they were traveling Mm -hmm. through so the spider keeps getting shorter and shorter and closer (laughs) and closer closer to them which is you know terrible and gross but actually pretty effective let's give the
1: movie credit is it does have those kind of moments those little there's some imagination visual imagination that kind of sets the film apart you know for all of its narrative confusion and failings uh you do get the occasional shot or sequence that is striking and so i kind of maybe want to see more from jordan roberts but uh did you
0: see kings of summer i didn't see yeah that was okay (laughs) (laughs)
1: but it's slick it's really slick it's kind of a nice little calling card movie if one wanted to direct a major studio film like king kong skull island
2: here's a tiny bit of trivia for you so the skull crawlers are two-legged lizards you know why aren't they in the original yes exactly yeah. so that sequence where uh kong is looking down over the cliff and driscoll is looking up from the cave a two-legged lizard mm-hmm. starts climbing up the cave like uh, attached to a vine and he cuts the vine and it drops down that was the inspiration the visual inspiration for the yeah. uh the skull crawlers yeah, the, the benefit of watching
3: king kong 33 after watching kong skull island as is i was able to go hey it's a skull crawler
0: <laughs> so, yeah. there's a lot of callbacks to the fight scenes had a lot of jaw cracking so much jaw cracking mm-hmm. in the original, and then they threw in a little bit of that
3: there, there, there's lots of little shout outs to the the
1: original which which we will get into in connection so we'll be right back <laughs> after this break to talk more about king kong kong skull island and how they relate to each other
0: the hell is this place that's Kong he's king around here Kong's pretty good king keeps himself mostly well you don't go into someone's
1: house and start dropping bombs unless you're picking a fight Kong's god
0: on the island but the devils live below us and what are they called I call them skull crawlers why I never said that name out loud before it sounds stupid now that I say just you call them whatever you want.
1: Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think we, we talked about a bit that uh, was borrowed. as was a very small part of King Kong that became a big part of Skull Island. So the, the uh, filmmakers of Skull Island did their research and watched uh, King Kong. <laughs> um, <laughs> Literally the
3: least they
0: could have done.
1: <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the effects in, in this movie, they're not as herky jerky <laughs> They are a little bit more in line with what we expect of visual effects in the year 2017. Um, So uh, let's talk about the contrast between those two things, the effects in the new one and the effects in King Kong.
2: I mean, the big link is that both of these movies are out to wow people who may have become jaded with a certain level of filmmaking. I mean, it's all about pushing the technology. It's Mm -hmm. all about saying, yes, but here's what we can do now. And I mean, in both cases, they're they're actively trying to make people feel a sense of of awe and wonder and being in another unreal space, a place that does not exist on Earth. They don't look a lot alike visually, but conceptually and terms of like how much can we push the envelope to make this real they come from the same place conceptually
1: but i think there's almost a limit that we've reached in terms of can you top this that was set by the peter jackson version though right i mean like those are 2005 those are pretty cutting edge effects are the effects in this any more striking i mean in a way you could say that that adding this kind of vietnam conceit and then and referencing apocalypse now is what brings it more distinction than the effects themselves.
2: I mean, that first shot of Kong that we mentioned previously, where he first appears silhouetted against the sun with the helicopters flying toward him, that. That struck me emotionally on a level I don't think anything in Jackson's Kong
0: did. I think kind of what sets it apart, which I've seen a lot of special effects now, is it's not just that the effects are good and we get them; we get cameras rolling around to show you every single possible angle, which which mostly works. Really, it works every...
3: really well in the helicopter massacre, I guess, yeah. like the type of shot because they're helicopters and they swoop around like
0: that. Yeah, and it's it's really on display a lot in the final fight scene too. It seems mm-hmm. like it's something you see a lot in Marvel movies too, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad, but I think it's, it's Going to be the. This was made in the middle of the 20 teens mark when oh we release this movie later. The new
2: Beauty and the Beast is like 50% swirl shots. <laughs> okay, so here's a connection between Kong movies Kong fighting with his woman of choice in his hand. In the 33 Kong, he, he realizes that this is a problem and he puts her down and fights a T Rex. <laughs> in Peter Jackson's movie, he fights a pitched battle with what, three T Rexes or is it 12 by the end? With Naomi Watts in his hand the entire time, really early in his running and fighting sequence, I thought, oh, oh, she's dead. That's too bad. I mean, she just she, she gets shaken like a rented rattle for like 20 minutes.
1: Where can you rent a rattle?
2: Uh, yeah, any music, sorry. OK, oh,
1: that's right. That one. I was thinking a baby rattle, but please go on.
2: And then in this, there was so little of that, like, I'm, I'm going to pick you up kind of thing that has been such a staple of the Kong movies. But you know, at the at the end, he does, and I'm like, oh, they managed that pretty well. And then he closes his hand around her and uses the hand to slug the skull crawler, and once again, not just
0: slug, she gets put inside the yeah. skull crawler's esophagus at one point.
2: <laughs> That's true, all the way down. Yeah. and, and then her backup, without her camera, <laughs> back up with with that hand gripping her and apparently like all of its intestines mm-hmm. at once. Okay, so you know how they tell you not to put your thumb inside your fist when you're hitting something because you'll break your thumb. You also don't put a human being inside your <laughs> fist when you're hitting something because you will squish them he's to very, jelly.
0: He's very ginger. But example. a catcher's mitt. It's yeah. very soft. You
3: know,
0: you just, but
1: but really hard on the outside. You, you, you rub. He rubs literal bear grease into his catcher's mitt of a hand. Um, so, but skull bears. So, so I mean, what what about the the emotional resonance? I mean, I think we talked about it a little bit, but like, I mean, that was one thing I I liked most about the Peter Jackson Kong is I, I felt that relationship between Kong and. Naomi Watts was kind of touching and yeah. was kind of what, really one of the best features, maybe the best feature of that movie. What do we think about the Kong, I guess, damsel in distress relationship in the new film compared to the 33?
0: I don't feel like she has much more relationship with him than any other character. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's not really a damsel in distress. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that's Brie Larson's bag, um, more power to her, but you know, I, I think we jump kind of jump immediately to godzilla in the later godzilla movies where he's kind of on the same side as the humans even though maybe they misunderstand his motives at first and then then he's kind of like a big pal yeah i mean i think it was maybe the question i'm asking then
1: is how much do we feel for this kong compared to the 33
0: I, i mean i don't think
3: we necessarily feel for him to the extent that we feel for kong 33 but like I think the relationship between Kong and the Brie Larson character is more of an allyship, in that Kong is the protector of the island. He protects the villagers, and supposedly he protects, you know, the water buffalo and stuff. So, that moment when he sees Brie Larson's character, like, kind of helping the overturned water buffalo, I guess, is supposed to be when we see that relationship kind of crystallizing, Mm -hmm. and also just kind of her respect I guess for the island as seen through her capturing it with her camera but not actually doing anything to the island like dropping bombs on it. I think there's like a very loose not very well-formed ecological message that it, that is maybe forming around that relationship. Mm-hmm. That said it is not very affecting both because it is pretty loose and ill-formed and it's just not as gut-level emotional as love.
2: There's a moment in uh, Fierce Creatures, the follow-on movie to A Fish Called Wanda, where it all takes place in a zoo that's being shut down bit by bit. And uh, one of the main characters, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, encounters a silverback gorilla that's gotten out of its enclosure. And she's terrified of it. She gets cornered by it. And then it just kind of is curious about her. And it, it, like, touches her gently and it looks into her eyes and then it retreats. And she comes away from the experience, like, emotionally changed. And the, the zookeepers say, oh, you made contact. And it's a really touching moment. I mean, they all know exactly what what happened to her, exactly what that experience is of having had a moment with an animal where you saw like intelligence and curiosity in its eyes and like had a moment with it. So that scene with Brie Larson and Tom Hilston up on the cliff where they kind of make contact with Kong that had a little bit of emotional resonance for me. And I think it's leftover fierce creatures, emotional resonance <laughs> rather than necessarily <laughs> anything that the film earns on its own. But As a moment of contact, I actually, I like that a lot better than, like, Kong runs off with the woman for, like, homina homina reasons and uh, has some kind of, like, weird psychosexual relationship with her that he doesn't have with anybody else. It just, it felt a lot more earned, I guess, especially when it's already been established that he's the protector to the natives. He's this strange, like, god force to them. He's basically Godzilla in the later Godzilla movies, protecting Tokyo from, you know, endless kaiju threats. So what
1: of the natives? Because uh, <laughs> that, that's an issue in King Kong 33. What what about the treatment of natives and uh, sort of the racial dynamics of this Kong?
2: Lord, I really feel like the filmmakers wanted wanted to give them dignity, by not letting them speak exactly, <laughs> and and that that translated to like let's let's not make them caricatures, let's make them you know, these strange, almost alien things. Let's just not have them talk. In fact, let's have a white man talk for them. That'll work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not sure why they all took their, their fashion sense from uh, the Hoichi the earless segment of a uh, Qui Don either. <laughs> Test written on their faces.
1: One thing that occurs to me just now uh, is because this is the t- this is always going to be certainly now a problematic element of doing a remake of King Kong. It might explain the allure of making it a Vietnam homage because you can kind of frame the whole thing as Apocalypse Now and as this, you know, encountering John C. Riley, who's certainly not really much of an analog for Kurtz, but, you know, uh, this... It's this,
0: like uh, Hopper's character in this, a way. Right,
1: but this man who's been living among the natives. And so at the very least, the whole thing is sort of couched in quotation marks.
0: I don't know. It feels like it's maybe two drafts away from making that concept work, you know, but... <laughs> Wanted to work. I wanted, I wanted to like this yeah, movie. Yeah, I mean Samuel L. You know?
1: Jackson I guess would be the Kurtz of the movie, huh?
0: Yeah. But I, I think he's more Ahab than Kurtz ultimately.
1: Oh well I there's guess. that too. God man, oh, there's so much going on here.
0: <laughs> so much mushed
2: <laughs> together. Yeah. Oh yeah. One thing, just from a racial perspective that kind of interested me about the movie, the Gene Dunby NPR piece that I referenced in the first half of this conversation, trying to figure out whether you can make a King Kong movie without racial overtones. One of the observations they made was given that the Sam Jackson character kind of makes it his job to kill Kong. It changes the racial dynamic where previously you've always had a white woman who needs to be rescued by a white man from the big ape. And here you have a black man making it his job to rescue in his mind, the world uh, from this ape. And suddenly the racial dynamic isn't as ugly there. The movie also just makes a point, I think so that you don't have Samuel L. Jackson as the black guy who is also kind of the villain of the piece. You've got uh, the black guy who is the scientist who doesn't do a whole lot in the movie, but is important in the, Post title: You've got a bunch of different multicultural soldiers, including like the black kid that kind of becomes your POV character for all of the soldiers put together. You've got a variety of different characters of color, so none of them have to be the this guy symbolizes everything about his race. Mm-hmm. You know, then they get to be individual characters. Mm-hmm. I think that at least is admirable. Well, theoretically.
1: I mean, that's the I think the idea is to do that, but then then the actual filling in of character detail is maybe lacking
2: well there is the problem where nobody in this film gets to be a character for long because we keep changing what movie we're in
1: (laughs) (laughs) which is good i like that as a working theory of this movie Uh, so i wanted to talk about the kong legacy a bit because uh it's vast starts in 33 and continues throughout many decades since and here we are now uh so where do we stand on king kong and now the Skull Island Diverse. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where is Kong right now? Where, where does it stand?
3: I mean, he's kind of the original big name movie monster, right? Like, I mean, he predates Godzilla. I can't think of anything else that would even come close to the title, but I'm looking at, at Keith. Just, uh, just
0: the just the monsters from The Lost World, but those are like. Yeah, and they don't yeah.
3: really have, have a name. So Kong was it. He was the movie monster for, for a while, and I think he's like kind of always. Maintained that OG status, but over the ensuing decades, the movie monster pantheon has been considerably filled out. So, all these kind of subsequent attempts to remake Kong, I think, are having to reaccount for that OG status in a certain way. I found it interesting to watch Skull Island through that lens and kind of the positioning him as a god instead of like a lost monster or something. And then we should probably talk about the post-credit sequence and setting up this larger monster universe that Kong is a part of. But I-, I guess I'm curious what you guys think as far as like if Skull Island is doing anything interesting with the legacy that the original King Kong set up.
1: I guess the fact that Kong is not
0: enough, yeah, um. yeah, well, uh, again, credit words too. I think it's smart to kind of like move away from the traditional Kong story in some way because we've seen it. That story played out three times in 3376 and 2005, so we didn't necessarily need a new version of that. So I think, you know, doing something different with it is the right move.
2: I think the legacy of Kong is that it gives us our one giant movie monster who's not lizard-based or (laughs) insect-based or alien-based. I mean, giant monster mammals are really pretty rare, and, I, like, he I, – I feel like that's one of the reasons he stands on his own. I mean, when we get the little tale at the end where it's like, oh, look at all of these other things, it's like, oh, yeah. So Mothra is an insect and, like, Ghidorah, however that's pronounced, is a sort of two-headed dragon thing. Three, Three-headed, I believe. Three-headed dragon yeah, yeah. thing and – Gamera is really neat. He's made of turtle meat. <laughs> uh, it, but basically like, you know, lizardoids and aliens and bugs. And maybe that's one of the reasons we identify with Kong so much is, you know, he's a lot more like us than mm. all of the other kaiju are. He's a lot less alien. He's, he's approachable and warm and cuddly in a way.
1: Tasha, you're tired of all of them.
2: <laughs> I'm not tired of all of them. I'm I'm actually I'm tired of seeing uh, them all fight. uh I'm actually stumping for us to do a pairing with Colossal uh, which is coming up in April uh, which is overtly a movie about Kaiju fandom and the original Godzilla. I think that would actually make a good pairing. And I'm looking forward to Pacific Rim too because I am a sucker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but are you looking forward to the expanded Kongverse? The idea is they're building toward a Godzilla movie, but now we see they got rodan and and mothra and all those things in there does that does that excite you
2: not the slightest (laughs) i don't know i i saw the original godzilla for the first time maybe five or six years ago and i was just so blown away by how, how much more i whenever you look at these like long franchises Movies that have been remade over and over and over. It's like going back to the first movie is a lot like going back to the book. You just, you often see so much more ambition and text and just conceptualism going on in the story. And then sequel style, it kind of gets pared down to, and he's a big ape and he smashes stuff. Uh, Of course, he smashes helicopters because that's what he does. Tradition. Of course, he fights lizards because that's what he does. Of course, he grabs the blonde girl because that's what he does. And it's just, it's all echoing the same things over and over. That's how I feel about the possibility of a franchise reviving all the same old monsters. I want new monsters and I want new stories about them. Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: what if you combine them with the monsters in the, the universal monster <laughs> uh, films that have been so successful? Frankenstein versus
2: Godzilla. Um, Frankenstein's a monster. Everyone loves a patent. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you can find the original King Kong on DVD and Blu-ray and streaming services and if you're totally old school, you can get the Criterion Laserdisc, which features the first <laughs> known audio commentary. Uh, Kong Skull Island was number one at the box office on opening weekend, so we'll probably stick around for a week, maybe two, uh, and we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment your next picture show finally it's time to catch each other up on films or film related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast we call it your next picture show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar Genevieve, Want to kick us off? Oh, sure. I wasn't expecting this. Yeah.
3: I wanted to recommend a Netflix exclusive movie called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. I think we are all fans of the movie Blue Ruin, uh, nope. which stars one Macon Blair, who is, I believe, a, a longtime collaborator of the director of Blue Ruin. Uh, Back to their teenage yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, best like best they friends, grew up, yeah. together, grew up together. So I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore is Macon Blair's uh, writing, directing feature debut. And it does kind of feel a little like Blue Blue Ruin, but uh, with uh, Melanie Linsky uh, in in the starring role, which, I mean, if that doesn't sell you, I I don't really know what else to tell you. But I'll tell you a little more anyway. She plays Ruth, a woman who is robbed. Someone uh, breaks into her home and robs her. And the police uh, don't offer much help, either tracking down her stuff or finding out who did it. So she takes it upon herself to do that herself with the help of a... Kind of weirdo neighbor named Tony played by Elijah Wood with a impressive rat tail and <laughs> as with Blue Ruin kind of uh, find themselves in way over their heads and it takes a turn and then it takes a few more turns and uh, turns into a very different movie uh, by the end than it appears at the outset but I love both of the the performances in this movie it can get a little wacky at times but it is also kind of reliably funny uh throughout and some uh Good gore in action, if that's your thing as well. And uh, yeah, it's streaming on Netflix. Uh, good one to check out.
1: Yeah, I, I liked it too. I mean, for, we should know that it won Sundance. Oh yeah, um, straight straight but up.
3: I like it, and that's what really matters.
1: <laughs> <it. laughs> uh, you know, the it, other note made I was
2: Sundance in her heart. The yeah. other <laughs>
1: note I, I would make is that it it depresses me that it is just appearing on Netflix like a month after it won Sundance because it is actually kind of a pretty good looking movie. I wish it were being released with more. Fanfare. It feels like it's like almost immediately buried among the the many other films on the home page. I could. I actually had to do a search. For, I saw it the the day it was released, and I had to do a search for it on Netflix just to find it. But
0: yeah, I think that's part of the problem with Netflix is whatever your objections you have to not be able to see a movie on a big screen. There's also they not doing a great job of. of Making a movie into an event it's just part of a it's mm-hmm. a con- part of a content dump. yeah
1: I mean Amazon does a better job really of, of yeah. doing, having some sort of a theatrical element but my last thought is that is that with Blue Rowan in this movie it 's clear to me that, that Macon Blair and uh, Jeremy Solnier just uh, sat around watching Blood Simple over <laughs> yes and Blood over again. Simple <laughs> is
3: a very obvious <laughs> reference point it's, as well.
2: it 's a very Cohen brothers dark comedy kind of movie both in terms of the wacky cast of characters and in terms of the way it kind of all f- like falls apart for the those characters at the end uh the flip side of the netflix thing i mean i agree with you about it not being enough of an event but i mean netflix funded the movie it was this isn't something that they know, threw a little money at out of sundance this movie exists because netflix made it happen um i interviewed macon blair for the verge at uh at sundance and i i want people to read that interview so much because he's i such read a, it today He's such a nice dude <laughs> yeah. and he's so informative and he's one of those like first time filmmakers who's really eager to talk about, you know, he he doesn't have those protective layers of, you know, he's going to say, I liked working with everyone, they were nice. Like he he really feels everything that he's created, and he's so so excited to be there. And one of the things I talked to him about was the fact that, you know, this movie was going to be seen in uh, at Sundance and maybe one other festival, and that might be it for it being on the big screen. And he said it didn't bother him at all because he said this movie is now is going to be available in more than 20 different countries. If it had had a theatrical run, it would have an indie level, plays one theater in New York, plays one theater in L.A. for two weeks. Nobody sees it kind mm. of run. He says, as it is, it's going to be online. You know, if the world lasts, it's going to be online forever. Mm. Anybody can see it at any time. It's not going to be this thing that, like, pops up and then disappears. He's like, this is, I mean, this is what immortality looks like right now, is so many people are going to have access to this movie. <laughs> he's he's really actively excited about the Netflix yeah, release. I, yeah, I
1: don't hey, agree right. with any of that special been
0: uh, we need a jeff of uh of scott's no right now. no well, I mean, it's
1: not like it's not like things get released in theaters and disappear they go to netflix and other streaming services but, as well
3: but I, I do have to say like having heard the buzz about this out of sundance on film twitter mm-hmm. like not knowing from that buzz that it was a, a netflix exclusive at the time i was really excited to find out that it wasn't like oh i'm not gonna have to seek this out at a theater like i can just watch this now and that is cool and like the theatrical experience is great and important and yeah. everyone should make time to go to the theater i but- want to that with that <laughs> facial expression <laughs> but in terms of just like this movie like uh, this movie that's like kind of like buzzy curiosity that really you don't have that much intel on being able to just like cue it up and be surprised by it it's a nice experience.
1: I appreciate that disclaimer. <laughs> it uh, was Genevieve. all for you, Scott. Thank you. Uh, so, Keith, what about you?
0: Uh, it's a little thin. I haven't seen as much as I usually do, and as much as I'd like to. And some stuff I've seen and hasn't been all that good. So, I'll recommend a handful of things I've seen since since last we met. Pull real Natasha. Yeah, pull and Natasha. Yeah, Paul, mm-hmm. I just a couple of movies I rewatched. We wrote Jackie. Jackie's is yeah. really mm-hmm. good. We didn't talk about it on the show, that's a fantastic movie. And I it got this weird rep where it's like the performance is great, but the movie so so the movie's great. The filmmaking in this movie is fantastic. Mm-hmm we watched How to Train Your Dragon. I think that movie does not get enough credit. That's a fantastic movie, as well. And that well.
2: movie does get a lot of credit. Yeah, it does. It, <laughs> I, I, it I, does. I, I it like may still not be enough. It's yeah, a really terrific yeah, film. It
0: is. It is. Like the first like five minutes or so are so stereotypical DreamWorksy stuff that I, I was like, "Oh boy!" But no, I love that movie. Uh, but the the one I was I was going to recommend uh, was Allied, which came out last fall. Oh. Robert Zemeckis's World War II thriller slash drama. I kind of came and went really quickly. I, didn't, quickly. I didn't review it or go to the press screen, so that I kind of missed my window to see it. But it's really quite good. Brad Pitt and Marianne Cotillard play spies uh, working together in uh, Casablanca. First sort of the film is, is a really kind of thrilling bit of espionage. And then it kind of turns into a personal drama and takes some turns. I'd it's probably best not gotten into on this podcast. But I mean... Speaking of people who, you know, How to Train Your Dragon, you know, maybe uh, a good example is uh, Zemeckis is kind of the same, like that in director form, where it's like this wildly successful director who probably never gets his due. He's really one of the top people out there. And like people, he's been having a little trouble getting yeah. people I mean, to nobody see saw, Nobody saw The Walk, and yeah. The Walk was
2: terrific. Yeah, yeah.
0: you're like Allied, too. I uh, yeah. recommend I'm it. I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, Tasha?
2: You know, uh, we at the beginning of this podcast we put out a call on Twitter to see what our next pairing was going to be, whether it was going to be Life and Alien or Transpotting and Transpotting Two. And uh, spoiler for the part that comes immediately after this, where we tell you what our next pairing would be, <laughs> uh, Transpotting and Transpotting Two seems to be losing. Mm-hmm. So um, much as, as with Keith, I've not been seeing a whole lot lately that I loved. So I'm going to punt and uh, and cheat and get Transpotting Two in there. <laughs> Transpotting is one of my all-time favorite movies. It's I think it's just this perfect little gem of texture and performance of uh, of like marrying a soundtrack to action and character of building through this very, very tight script, a story about a specific place and time and and a feeling. But part of what makes it so powerful for me is that part of that feeling is about this, this specific place of youth The sequel, T2 Trainspotting, uh, also starring the same cast, also directed by Danny Boyle, also derived from works by uh, author Irvin Welsh, is also about a place and time much later in life. And it is not a necessary film. Um, That's something that several people in this room have kind of reflected Mm -hmm. back at me is, you know, this movie has no reason to exist. For me, the reason for it to exist is to reflect the fact that We see so much of youth and the disaffectation of youth and the problems of youth on screen, and we so rarely get a follow-up. For me, T2, which is about these same characters 20 years later, both on-screen and off-screen, it's been 20 years, it comes back and finds where they are now. And where they are now mostly is in a place of stagnation and disaffectation, where they're still trying to figure out who they are. You know, back in their youth, they knew who they were. They were heroin addicts. They were, you know, they were wastrels. They were people kind of abusing and wasting life and feeling this sort of dark, mordant joy in some of it. But now 20 years later, they've kind of come to a point of of who am I and what does this mean? They're having midlife crises. And it's not nearly as energetic a story in a way, even though, you know, Danny Boyle puts his usual crazy visual verve into it. But to me, it's, it's just as trenchant a story in a way. It's about how life doesn't, doesn't stop you know, it doesn't it doesn't stop because you've come to what looks like the end of a story. It just keeps on going on and you have to figure out what the new story is. There are a bunch of really fun little set pieces in it. But what hit me more than anything else is just how well it captures the emotions of being middle aged and trying to figure out what that means.
1: I mean, I, I am not as enthusiastic about it as you are, but I think those themes are present and do give it a little bit of a different feel. than you know, you can't be. uh you could live kind of an aimless life when you're 20, but you know when you're 40 and you're still sort of kicking around and you don't really have any sense of purpose. It's a whole sadder situation. You become kind of the aging punk at the music show that everyone's kind of looking at askance. So I think I think it's worth seeing, despite my mis- misgivings about yeah, it.
0: I don't think it's necessary, but it's a nice postscript uh, playing like a one long epilogue. I think it's kind of nice. Do you know how I wrote that to movie? It was you and Bremer who yeah. uh as, as comic relief mostly kind of tragic comic relief in the first movie but and he's like still got that kind of rubber faced comic you know ability but but it's a really soulful performance in this uh, that was uh tr- I mean everyone's good but I think it's worth yeah. uh seeing just for him yeah, the yeah. fact
1: that he's still a junkie yeah. after mm-hmm. uh, all that time is uh, uh, pretty harrowing in its way
2: yeah, for me this is just it's such a fascinating look at nostalgia and it's such a fascinating look at continuity. It kinda hit me in the same place that Michael Apted's seven up documentary series does. Mm. The documentary series that checks in on the same group of Brits every seven years and you see how they've developed. That felt a little bit like this. Mm. Scott, what's uh what's on your radar?
1: Well, earlier uh, this month, I went again to the True False uh, Festival in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, Last year, I came back uh, and told everyone about (laughs) Starless Dreams, uh, which was released uh, by Cinema Guild earlier this year. I saw about 13 or 14 films over two and a half days or so at uh, True False, and at least half of them had to do with racial injustice, including some films that will surely pop up uh, later this year, like Step, which is going to be a huge hit, I think. It's a crowd-pleaser about steppers at a, at an all-girls uh, college prep school in Baltimore. Oh, my God. Um, and uh, Whose Streets, uh, which is a film about the uh, Ferguson protest and the Black Lives Matter movement. But my favorite film of the festival, uh, which will also be released by Cinema Guild, uh, is called Rat Film uh, by <laughs> director Theo Anthony. Uh, Rat Film is like a David Simon show, crossed with an Errol Morris film. It's an impressionistic and aesthetically striking essay film that deals with the subject of rats in Baltimore in a literal and metaphorical sense. Uh, we get a history of how the rat problem was managed, about how it mirrored the racial and economic makeup of the, in the legacy of the city. But we also get some unexpected, fast, cheap, and out-of-control-like detours into virtual reality, into forensics. It's a very strange, you know, one-of-a-kind, uh, sometimes perplexing and, and more often alluring documentary that's uh, quite unconventional so if you're a fan of unconventional documentaries uh, look for it uh, at some point later this year um, from cinema guild rat film
2: I feel uh, I feel a little bit jealous all of us are sitting around trying to uh, find a film that's good and Scott went off to an entire uh, festival little
1: festival and, and I mean that the festival itself is wonderful and affordable and something I really and very quirky and the food is unbelievable uh, <laughs> I just ate so many so much donuts and Korean tacos and like in the uh, Goulash, it was like like legit goulash, unbelievable. Like the so you can really you can you can uh, watch uh, films. It's a, it's a great place for conversation and eating. So uh, so I, it I, sounds
3: like true false is sort of a, a side recommendation. It really
1: is. you are going to have to wait a year to
3: have it.
2: <laughs> gotta, Start planning you gotta,
1: now. You got you really should, and it's not it's something that anyone can attend. You know and see virtually all or uh, what you want to see. And got, uh, does the, city the have, is quite nice.
2: Does the city have Korean tacos and goulash during it? not? true falls festival
1: yep it's always there Hmm. that's a really you nice you know story. you also
2: live in chicago
1: uh, a city with a uh, it's robust within, food it's all within scene. <laughs> walking distance it's all within walking distance and it's all like under ten dollars you, you say know? a
3: robust goulash scene i said a robust food scene why it didn't you say robust. a robust goulash scene though <laughs> well i'm, I'm not well versed enough in the goulash scene of
2: chicago to really make but that oh you know
1: your goulash You're, you've got the, that's your roots right This goulash <laughs> and pierogi
2: this spice is legit it's,
1: it's, it's, it's place is legit
2: okay next uh next episode everybody brings a goulash recommendation and it's going to be your next goulash show i don't, I don't,
0: think, I've ever, I don't think i've
2: ever had goulash oh you're missing yeah. out yeah.
1: see my parents used to just like it, was, it used to be like elbow macaroni and ground beef and like and like stewed tomatoes and that was goulash so it's like so <laughs> goulash
2: that's garbage <laughs> what i'm
1: saying though that's what that's what they called goulash and like so then when i had well, we put pepper on it which made it better <laughs> but it's <laughs> salt they would salt salt it as well um but <laughs>
3: right, well, we're definitely going to fade out at some point during this. <laughs> no, we watch need to conference. keep all this in; it's
2: super important. Uh, so, let's
1: right. just
3: consider this faded out already. All right,
1: fade out. <laughs> and so that's it for this week's edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out April fourth and
0: sixth. Keith, what do we have lined up? As Tasha mentioned, we had some excitement recording this because we couldn't decide what films to do next, so we put it out to our Twitter followers for a vote. Would it be Scottish heroin addicts or killer aliens? Uh, killer aliens won, as they so often do. So we'll be looking at Ridley Scott's Alien and Life, a new science fiction thriller directed by Daniel Espinosa that looks heavily inspired by Alien. It charged Ryan Reynolds, Rebecca Ferguson, Jake Gyllenhaal, and other actors who may or may not make it through the entire movie.
1: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of King Kong and Kong Skull Island and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on the future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Phipps.
0: I'm at uprocks.com, a little bit behind the scenes, a little bit in front of the scenes. And you can find me on Twitter as kfips 3000 uh, Genevieve?
3: I am the Deputy Culture Editor at Vox.com, so I uh, deputize some culture. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> like like Keith, I am mostly behind the scenes, but occasionally in front of the scenes. And I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Koski. And I did, wanted to give a quick shout out for a podcast that I recently appeared on, uh, the Switched On Pop podcast, which is really great. And um, they invited me on to talk about the music of La La Land, which uh, mm. we obviously discussed in our podcast on that and Umbrellas of Cherbourg, but... Um, Charlie and Nate, the hosts, do a really, really interesting job breaking things down on a musical level, and they brought me in to kind of talk about the film side, but really, you should just go and listen for what they bring to the conversation, uh, because it was really fun, and it
2: made me appreciate the music of La La Land a lot more huh. than I did. Alright,
1: uh, I, could, I could use that. Tasha <laughs> Robinson?
2: Uh, you can find me both in front of the scenes and behind the scenes at com. You can find my interview with Macon Blair there. He is the nicest dude mm-hmm. You can also find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson.
0: Scott?
1: Feel, uh, well, first you can find me on Twitter at, at <laughs> Scott underscore Tobias. You can also find my work at uh, The New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, Vulture, Variety Uproxx uh, Guardian, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog, which has had some really cool stuff up there lately. We had a piece uh, that ran uh, this week about, um, that interviewed the screenwriter of Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans, about certain controversial scenes in that film and uh it's fascinating uh, look at the process and about uh how screeners you know veteran screenwriters need to kind of let go a little bit you can stay updated on the next picture show via twitter at next picture pod and via facebook at facebook.com slash next picture show if you haven't already please subscribe to the show on itunes and while you're there think about rating and reviewing us every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show. And thanks to Jennifer Ukoski for providing the recording space at her home base, her home base. <laughs> the Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film-spotting family of podcasts in the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.